Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Sound Consulting. G'day, Nina. How are you? Good. How are you, Andrew? Not Karen Liu. I know. Can we wave to Karen home? Karen's sick today, so Karen can't be here. Nina, well done for jumping in at the last minute. That's great. Yeah, I love how much notice you give me. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first time, bagging within seconds. Uh, Look, I'd just like to let you know, if you want to go on LinkedIn and look up Matt's name or look up FCW's name, you'll find his video on the Victorian sick pay guarantee. Really helpful one one or two minute good guidance. How are you going? Yeah, good. How are you? I'm so glad it's Friday. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've, we've, I've, it's been a pretty heavy week in a whole lot of ways, including having to go out late at night and <laughs> set up at work, which is why I've got my double O double five voice this morning. Yeah, it's like, very deep. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, um, let's kick it off. South Australia, isn't it funny in work health, health system where we tried to get one single system across Australia and Victoria decided I'm not playing that game. Yeah. But every other state does something and you go, why? So the <laughs> South Australia has introduced industrial manslaughter, which has a different test of manslaughter in every other state. Yeah, it's based on recklessness. God, <laughs> what is wrong with them? Why can't they? G'day, everyone who's coming in. It's lovely. G'day, Karen. Welcome. Oh. And Matt as well. Gee, the team are out this morning. <laughs> so that's coming. We don't know when it's going to come. And it's based on recklessness, which is the same as the lesser offence that is beneath it. It just recklessly causes death. Yeah. Lifts it 20 years up. That's all. From five years to 20, 25 or 20? No, 20 years imprisonment. And they haven't announced what the financial uh, penalties will thanks, be. Yet. Thanks, South Australia, for doing that. <laughs> all right. Let's go to our first case, which is Snook and Comcare. And Nina, over to you. Yeah, so it's a really interesting case. So it involved the AFP and they had a site supervisor who was acting really aggressively. When his manager went to stand him down for the night shift, he went off. Just to calm him down. Yeah, just basically just to calm him down. He went off, said no, went off on a pay period of sick leave for four months. Four months, yeah. Yeah, then um, continued for another four months of unpaid sick leave, was certified as fit to return to work, but they said, look, it's not safe to bring you back given your anger management issues, so we'll relocate you to another state. He was unhappy with that, filed a workers' comp claim, and actually lost on both accounts. So remember the three tests that sit around psychological injury, and one of those is reasonable management action. So yeah. do they have an injury? Did it arise at work or during the course of work? Third question is, was there reasonable management action? And what the AFP did, which was really good here, is they identified the risk this person demonstrated if they came back to work. Now, remember what I've said to you a number of times, that workers' compensation sits within the rubric of other workplace law. Mm -hmm. When you go to introduce a person on a return to work, they are a person who is not doing the job they did before. You don't have real clarity around their capacity, even if you do have a medical report it has to be tested against the workplace they're in. So your obligation under safety law is to do what? A risk assessment. Yeah, of all risks, like physical and also psychological ones too. So here the AFP nailed it. They got it right. Nailed yeah. this one of my daughter's expression. Sorry, I slipped <laughs> into my narrative yeah, every now and again. a bit too young for you. <laughs> nailed is a bit young for me, isn't it really? But they did that and they said, yeah, well, you might be fit to come back to work, but nobody's fit to have you back. Yeah. You create such a risk or a threat to people there. So rather than doing the dumb thing, which saying, I oh, will go away completely, they said, how can we put the, put you into an environment? Has this session started yet, Janet? I hope it has, yes. But, <laughs> good to see you, Janet. Hi, Janet. <laughs> um, 
And they said, look, put you somewhere else. And he said, no, this is causing me stress, put in a psychological claim. And when they analysed the behaviour of the AP, they said, no, this is entirely appropriate. Yeah. So I don't often praise workers' compensation cases, <laughs> <laughs> but this is one I want to, okay? So very good. Next one is Presio and Jade Stone Energy, which is a case on border restrictions. Oh, this one's ridiculous. So, <laughs> I've got to tell the facts first. So this was a FIFO worker. Um, during his six-week period off, six weeks on, six weeks off, he um, had an operation on his knee and then he wasn't fit to return in the next six-week period. Yeah. Because of the border restrictions, the company decided they wanted to get people living in Western Australia. Now, that wasn't what his contract said. He was a no. FIFO worker. Yeah. Um, it turned out that he then wasn't fit to come back to work and they fell upon the idea through some very astute advice they would argue that he has frustrated the contract employment and therefore it was terminated as a matter of law. It's crazy. I just want to run that through you really slowly because I don't think anybody could quite understand how dumb that is. <sighs> so you've got a worker who's complying with his contract, who notifies you of what's happening immediately, wants to go to work as a FIFO worker, border restrictions come in that frustrate his capacity to move to Western Australia. Yeah, because they wouldn't grant him an exemption yeah. to come. And somebody says that something external from the employer-employee relation prevented him from doing his work going forward, it prevented for a very short period of time. Yeah. And it wasn't what his contract was about in any no. event. So remember, frustration deals with a third-party intervention or event that occurs that means that a contract can't be continued. So if we look at the prison cases, Nina, Drink, drink drives and gets locked up for three days. Does that frustrate her contract of employment because a court has imposed the three days? No, it doesn't because for three days she's back at work very shortly after. But if she went to jail for two years, that would yeah. certainly frustrate the contract. Here this is a very short period of time. It's temporary absence because the person wasn't fit for the inherent requirements yeah. of the job at the time which he was terminated and then but for the border restrictions was able to return. Yeah. He's done nothing wrong and would have been able to return in the near future. And he wanted to return. That's the thing. He did everything possible to try to do what they wanted. And you've got to, run, you've got to wonder why someone would run a case like this, don't you? Yeah, why would you run this all the way? You should have settled this. There was no benefit to terminating him. And they what, and what, kept and him and, and that, not paid anything. And when we talk oh. about reputational damage, you just want to read what the Deputy President says about it. Yeah. It's just scathing. Yeah. And I guess this comes back to something I say to you on a regular basis. Remember, workplace legislation is set up as beneficial legislation to protect workers. Now, we as employees know that engagement, compassion and generosity is part of being a good employee. Anyone who doesn't think that is living in some other world, okay? <laughs> uh, anyone who's been through COVID and hasn't learnt those lessons is definitely a dinosaur and we know what happened to them, extinction, okay? <laughs> so... Everything in this, which is good behaviour, was ignored and then we got this sharp end advice that thought we'll use this, this government order and we'll just, yeah, it's really simple. And they fought a case and they got thrashed. Yeah, there was absolutely no logic to yeah. this. Yeah, anyway, so look, that's a case that we both thought that we'd rant about. It's usually only <laughs> me because Karen doesn't rant, but Nina rants more than I do. So I just want to let you in on yeah, that. this one really angered me. <laughs> okay. Now I want to talk about a dumb case and a dumb decision. It's full of dumb cases <laughs> No, it's <today>. dumb and dumber. <laughs> but Sydney Trains and Bob Rensky is a case which we dealt with at first instance in an article where a guy blew four times the legal limit, was arrested by police, yep. turned up to work as a train driver the next morning, drove a train and then said to his supervisor, <laughs> yeah. by the way, you know, last night 
being drink yeah. drive and was arrested and wondered why he was terminated. <laughs> you know, it's a rather big object to train, you know, driving it with alcohol in you, everyone knows would be dangerous. Yeah. For reasons which I can never understand, at first instance, they ran this as what's called a Rosentel strain, which is out-of-work conduct. Now, Rosentel is an important case because there are three times in which out-of-work conduct is a basis for termination. It doesn't make it being at work, but it forms a basis. One is where it's fundamentally contrary to the nature of your contract. One is where it would make it impossible for you to work with the people that you work with. And the last one where it goes to the reputation and, yeah. and, and viability of the business. Now, this was a safety issue. <laughs> this is a person that turns up to work potentially with alcohol driving a large piece of plant. And the problem with all our tribunals and often with lawyers is they only do one silo of law. Yeah. And so clearly what happened for the lawyers representing them and for the tribunal in the first instance is they could only think of the employment law issue that applied, whereas the one that jumps out, the one that you cannot miss, is that a man potentially with alcohol on board gets inside a train and drives it. Yeah. Now, how could you miss? That's such an obvious safety obligation and it's so clearly serious misconduct. Why? Because you go to Regulation 107, yeah. which talks about serious misconduct and says causes an imminent threat of harm to others. Yeah. How could you miss it? Well, anyway, they did it first instance. So we're about four or 500,000 down the train and running a piece of litigation where the answer was always very basic. If a person attends work about to undertake inherently dangerous work yeah. with the risk of alcohol or drugs in the system and fails to disclose it with the knowledge that it could be there, they're out. Yeah, and he also had a history as well and the commissioner didn't consider that. Didn't consider it at all. No. So another, And so at the end of it, on appeal, what they said is how could you have trust and confidence in a person who regularly drives heavy plant and drinks? Yeah. Anyway, great decision really in the sense they got to the right point. But what I want you to think about is this. The law is integrated. It's not siloed. Yeah. Safety is the first piece of law you go to on all occasions around conduct. Why? Because people have an obligation personally to exercise reasonable care to prevent injury to themselves or others. Isn't that easy? Yeah. That's a person who Yeah, starting point. So if someone's bullying someone, if someone's got misconduct, it's a safety issue first. Then you go back and look what the rest of the law says happens after that, but you don't start with the rest of the law and forget about safety. Which is commonly done. Which is commonly done. All right, we're going really well. In fact, we're on time, which is most unusual, Karen. When you're here, some for some reason, we run late. But I think that's your fault, though, not hers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's the last time Nina's on this panel. Okay. Nina, <laughs> for being so clever, I'm going to come to you. Nina runs, is, is part of the safety team in our uh, business and probably runs more of the investigations around misconduct than any of us. And today we want to talk about uh, a really complex area of running investigations which has been agitated quite a lot in cases recently. But, Nina, can you just give us an overview of what are the problems you see in investigations that land on your desk? What are the common problems you see? Oh, so there's a few uh, things like not putting the allegations in writing to um, the perpetrators, not actually knowing the, the legal. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell Nina Act employers yeah, exactly. they are a perpetrator. <laughs> Until proven. <laughs> sorry, to the alleged perpetrator. Uh, not knowing the legal basis for law, so whether it's based on employment or safety law, looking at different forms of evidence. So what I commonly see is employers focusing purely on the direct witnesses but 
looking at CCTV footage or anyone else who was in the area, not testing the evidence. The amount of times I've had clients say to me, oh, this is what the alleged perpetrator said, but I don't believe him. But they've done no research or looked into whether any of it was true. And look, commonly people back in it, don't they go, this person did this, we need to do an investigation. You go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wrong order. <laughs> <laughs> wrong order, wrong order. <laughs> and the other part we, we see is, and, and you raise this, is, look, first of all, you've got to know the law of the investigation you're doing. Yeah. And as you said, you know, what are, what are the types of law? Mm-hmm. Then what is the lawful and reasonable directions that sit above that? Yeah. So you then go to policies and procedures, mm-hmm. codes of conduct, those types of things, and satisfy yourself that the person knew of those because it's one thing having a policy or procedure, but the person's never seen it. Yeah. It's not a lawful and reasonable direction. And you almost always have to actually put that to the alleged perpetrator. Like if you don't have the evidence that they say, yes, I know this, you took me through it in the induction, it really weakens your case. But the big one is how do I find the factors? Yes, and that's why we're here today. (laughs) So let's talk about that briefly. When you're doing an investigation, you're not drawing a legal conclusion. That's actually my job, so don't do it, okay? You pay me to do that, you don't do it. (laughs) Your job is to find facts and then in the finding of those facts to determine whether those facts constituted a breach of some part of what you do in the organisation and whether that warrants some sort of disciplinary action. So the key is you find facts, and this is where it gets hard because there is law about how to find a fact, and it's called Brigginshaw. So it means you've got to satisfy yourself first on the balance of probabilities, which is it's more likely than not, but then you look towards what is the seriousness of the conduct. Now, the seriousness of the conduct that comes out of Brigginshaw is not whether you think it's serious or not, and there's a case that we've got called GVH, which is a case of child maintenance and custody where... The judge at first instance thought it was such a serious matter, they should elevate the Brigginshaw test, and I'll talk more about what that is. And the appeal court said, no, Brigginshaw deals with criminal conduct. So when we talk about seriousness, criminal and something's alleged like fraud or like bullying, and bullying is criminal conduct, okay? So is sexual harassment. They're recognised forms in criminal codes of existing and they are crimes under legislative under safety legislation, okay? Yeah. Because if someone bullies, in other words, they and they do it intentionally, it's reckless misconduct, okay? So we know that form those sorts of behaviours are up the scale of criminality. They're starting to be, you know, bullying is at a very low level, fraud is obviously a very yeah. high level. Yeah. Wherever you're alleging an intention to do something wrong, you're coming to Brigginshaw. And what Brigginshaw says is as you move up that layer, the evidence that you rely on for the purpose of what is the balance of probability has to be real. It can't be elusive. It can't be a vibe. It can't be and, an intuition. Or inferences. Inferences. Yeah. You've got to go to just facts. So there's a number of cases that go around it, and I guess, you know, the ones that jump out to me is the Commissioner of Police and uh, Zizapula is, I think, how it's pronounced, where, <laughs> where a, a, a policeman was alleged to have MDMA and ICE is an incredibly low level, he said. Within his hair, I think. Yeah, yeah well, there's reasons in your hair. I haven't told it this. You actually test hair best for when drugs were taken. Oh, really? Because, yes, on the growth of the hair, you can actually see the age of it. Oh. So that's why hair samples are always used by police. They're the most accurate method of drug analysis wow. that exists. But at the time at which he would have taken this, he was doing work that involved people who were smoking and using drugs. There were three reports, all of whom said you couldn't exclude 
that it was something that he absorbed in the nature of his work and the senior constable who was in charge of the police commissioner said, no, no, well, on the balance of probabilities he used it and yet there was evidence. And they said that he deliberately used it. Deliberately used it. So this is pure brigandshaw because this is very serious. He's going to lose his job. There's a suggestion of criminality and the evidence was equivocal. You couldn't rely on that evidence as real evidence to support what you had observed, which was the test. So you needed more than what the test said. The test said it was in his body. You needed real evidence to show that it was connected to the deliberate use, and there was none. And the crazy thing is they didn't actually have to go to the Brigginshaw standard. Because of the way they put the allegations, it drew Brigginshaw in. So basically they shot themselves in the foot. That's right. The moment they alleged there was criminality, it went from being just balance of probabilities, the evidence before me, to, Mm -hmm. and of course they did that because it was a way of terminating their employment. And that's why Brigginshaw is important. So the same in any form of sexual misconduct. There's a whole series of cases that are around this. Kamari is another case which talks about a guy who was a, a trainway. A tramway. Yeah, <laughs> there is a woman who was a tramways person using allegedly using miking cards to create a fraud, and there was no objective evidence she had or that her identity hadn't been used by others. Yeah, so there was evidence that it was linked to her staff ID, but when she said no, other people use my ID, they just didn't look into it at all. Yeah. And so this comes back to what Nina and I want to really talk about on it, and that is People forget that evidence is not just testing, not just what people say. Yeah. Whenever you do an investigation, the first thing you should do is create a chronology of facts because that's all evidence. So if there's an allegation that Nina did something that was fraudulent by being in a particular room, the first things you have to establish is that Nina was in the room. doesn't matter what anyone else says. You go through and you say, was there CCTV? Did people see Nina go in a room? Did Nina say she was in a room? Yep. Okay, you look at all that evidence that exists to demonstrate what was the course of conduct that led to it. And that means witnesses are not just people who heard something, they're people who could have heard something, could have seen something. In criminal law, we call that circumstantial evidence. And in circumstantial evidence, beyond reasonable doubt, very, very high standard proof, will become probative when there is no other reasonable explanation for what could have occurred. So remember, this is very reliable evidence because it creates the circumstance around. In a lot of the stuff we deal with, like in sexual harassment cases, like in bullying cases, it is one person's word against yeah. another. And everyone goes, how, very can, difficult how can I do that determination? And what we see in the case study today is the challenge on that and how you do it. But the important thing is in nearly every case that we're involved in, if you capture the circumstantial evidence, then you start to see real evidence supporting a particular version of events, which allows you to say, look, I, the evidence that the alleged perpetrator, for your expression, or wronged her, which would probably be mine, <laughs> the correct one, <laughs> just, the perpetrator. <laughs> doesn't stack up. And it doesn't stack yeah. up for these reasons. And then I can start to make evidence about how I weigh the evidence on yeah. on credibility. Remember, credibility is the last question you ask after you've reviewed the entire of the evidence. So Brigginshaw says where there is an element of criminality in what you do, the level of criminality increases the level of the quality of the evidence. doesn't change the balance of probabilities test. No. More likely than not, what it does is it makes you search for more definite evidence that you can feel comfortable supports your balance of probabilities. You just don't take the words of the two people because it's it's an illusion. 
they'll agree to the same set of facts and have two yeah. different versions of what occurred. So, look, that's brilliant. Sure, it is tough, okay? If you're struggling about doing fact-finding, just give us a call. Don't get stuck and try and guess it. And it's not going to cost you to give me a yeah. call and say, look, I think this is what I'm going to do and I'll ask you the questions that I've just talked about. What's the circumstantial evidence? Were there other people who knew they were in a room? I'll do all those things just to remind you where to get the evidence, okay? Yeah. But this is where cases fall over every day. Yeah. Please okay. don't just weigh up 50-50 the decision. All right. Now, we're going to go now to the case study and I've got a number of words in thinking it was Karen today, but fortunately... <laughs> Fortunately, Nina has the same difficulties that Karen does. Over to you. Oh, gosh. Okay. I should say, don't forget Slido, okay? Because oh, yeah. there'll be three questions at the end of this. You've got the Slido at the end when this problem's been read. Sophie, who's going to England at 6 o'clock today. So exciting. So exciting for Sophie. And she'll put up a slide that you can click onto and we'll allow a bit of time on LinkedIn so that you can load up. Okay, over to you. Okay. So Samaria was the HR manager for the Children's Hospital Orthopaedic Private Surgery, CHOPS, team in Melbourne. The CEO instructed her to investigate a sexual harassment allegation against Simon, the resident anaesthetist. 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 Oh, my gosh. Made by a nurse called Ingrid. Ingrid alleged that Simon had made lewd and suggestive comments towards her at a social event and that he touched her inappropriately as they waited for a taxi after the event finished. Ingrid and her housemates had organised the cocktail party via WhatsApp group message, which included everyone in the CHOPS team. The event took place three hours after the workshop finished. The investigation was initiated because Jenny, another theatre nurse, overheard Simon making the comments to Ingrid. Next slide. Jenny made a complaint to the AM. MF, who raised it specifically with the CEO. Samaria spoke directly to Jenny, who explained that she heard what happened, both the lewd comments and Ingrid asking Simon to stop at the time of the alleged touching. Jenny recalled that Ingrid, who was very drunk at the time, approached her in tears and told her how sick and distressed she felt about the touching. Ingrid gave a similar account, although she couldn't recall the exact words Simon had used, but said they were offensive. Ingrid was also unable to say where and when the touching occurred because she was very drunk and very upset. Five witnesses said they were standing close together outside the house after the party ended. They heard Ingrid raise her voice but saw nothing. Next up. Simon said they were both making silly, sexy comments inside and that he bumped into her outside. He explained that his forearm touched her breast and his left leg touched her right leg. He said that Ingrid went off but it was accidental. He said he apologised at the time and then by text the next morning. Simon added that and said Ingrid was very drunk and he was pretty drunk as well. No one thought Simon was affected by alcohol or heard him say anything after the incident. His text to Ingrid was at 1.25pm the following day saying, sorry, so drunk I fell into you last night. It was an accident. Sorry. Ingrid responded, don't message me again, you sleaze. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you Nina's already formed a view about this. Now, this, is, <laughs> this is Slido. This is how you get on. We're going to talk amongst ourselves while you get on and think about the questions and then we're going to come and answer them for you. But a good problem, not unusual for us to have this, is it? No, unfortunately it's very common. And I'm, I'm not sure everyone can see that number. That's why we have to not talk about the questions. That's why Sophie's got the, the clock. Oh, yeah, yeah, not long, yeah. 40 seconds. Yeah. So we were, we were having breakfast this morning. You formed a very strong view about this problem. It's almost like you were acting for them. Yeah, well, if I was acting for them, I think I'd be very clear about what way I'd go. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I think most people would agree with me. I think so. But this really does throw up the Brigginshaw issue, doesn't it? Yeah. Because there's no clear evidence. Yeah, but there's a way. There's always a way. There's no sympathy <laughs> for people who do this kind of stuff. <laughs> All right, we're getting very close now. Ten seconds. I'm looking at Sophie. Sophie, are we allowed to start talking now or do we have to wait? We have to oh, wait. We've got, the, wait. we've got the finger. We've got three seconds to go and then we're going to go. Right. <laughs> Was CHOPS able to take disciplinary action against Simon even though the behaviour happened outside of a formal work function? So the answer is unquestionably yes, yeah. but it's got nothing to do with out-of-work conduct. Yeah, and it wasn't a formal work function. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Tricky so, question. Yeah, so this is a Rosen-Telstra case, okay? So this is not where you'd say, well, there was a condemnation of drinks party by a leader at the party and therefore it formed part of a workplace. So it's not that argument. The only question is, does it fall under the Rosen-Telstra? Could it affect the reputation of the organisation? Well, potentially. Mm. Was it fundamentally in a position which would be a breach of his contract. So fundamental that it goes to the very heart of it, um, sexually harassing somebody that you work with. Yeah, and someone who works underneath you too. Yeah. And finally, would it make it impossible for you to work with a person given the nature of what you do? So this is a Rosen-Telstra where you're allowed to take discipline. So, yes, disciplinary action could be taken. So I want you to always think, yeah, (laughs) settle, settle down. So I want you to remember there are two things. There are circumstances where... Work condones something afterwards like a Christmas party and a supervisor takes people out to drinks afterwards, still part of work. Yeah. Whereas this is out of work conduct and caught by what's called the Rosen-Telstra decision. Question next, could Samaria relying on Brigginshaw standard make positive findings in respect to the comments and or touching? So the answer is let's talk about why this is a hard thing. For a start, Jenny didn't see the touching, did overhear the comments. Yeah. But there is an explanation provided by Simon as to those comments, which it would be hard for her to say one thing or the other. The actual victim of this, because they were drunk, was unable to locate the time and place things occurred. So there's a level of unreliability that sits across the evidence, and it is a quasi-criminal complaint. So Brigginshaw does apply. But the circumstantial evidence is compelling. And the most powerful part of the circumstantial evidence is what's called recent complaint. So in any type of sexual offence in criminal law where a person raises that, makes a complaint to someone immediate, in the immediate aftermath, that is evidence of corroboration. So yeah. very important. And there's absolutely no doubt that the victim did do that and was very yeah. clear yeah. about what occurred. What's also clear is there is no disagreement of what was said. Simon tries to pass it off as something different. And we've got five witnesses who say, Simon said nothing at the touching, but the victim definitely did and was definitely hurt and offended. So you've got real evidence you can lock on to say, okay, he said, she says, risky, bit unreliable, but the reliability of the evidence is improved by the external and circumstantial evidence. So the purpose of this case study to show is on my basis, I would have accepted that. I would have found, found that he did say those things and it wasn't said in a consensual manner no. and the touching occurred which was non-consensual yeah. and it hurt and offended her. I'd find that. And his excuses didn't make any sense. How do you fall with your forearm? Like I was practising this at home. It's very hard, by the way. Ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, could Ingrid make a successful workers' compensation claim, remember Ingrid is the victim, if she suffered psychological injury as a result of Simon's behaviour? 
Uh, this is an incredibly difficult question, okay, because there is case law that says two things. So it's not during the course of employment. There are two parts of workers' comp, during or arising out of the course of the employment. It didn't arise really out of the course of the employment, but the courts would find it would because yeah. these were work people yeah. doing something together in the knowledge that they were work people. This is right on the edge of workers' compensation law, but I remind you, workers' compensation law is benevolent law. Yeah. So the correct answer is no. Can I just say to you? But I've told you that workers' comp tribunals throughout Australia are overly benevolent and not and not actually too often guided by law, which is very, very frustrating for us all. Yeah. So the correct answer should be no. But they would. But there is no doubt that they would. Yeah. And remember... There are very few appeals of tribunal decisions in workers' compensation because it doesn't get any better as you go. No, it gets worse. <laughs> so can you see how here I can terminate someone's employment but I may not be able to get a workers' comp claim up? And it's the exact opposite of what normally happens where the injured worker always has an entitlement and it's hard for the organisation to exercise power. So it just shows you. But, again, let's go back and talk about when, when you walk away from this problem, so what should I really do? You should have a real clarity around behaviours and expectations with other colleagues. Out-of-work behaviour should be addressed yeah. and that should always include social media and the management of it and people should be trained that when you're working with work, wherever you are with work colleagues, yeah. if you do things that impact that work colleague, the reputation of the organisation or if fundamentally something that tears up who you are. Like this is the Heath case, you know, yeah, where you're a exactly. young man who trains young Aboriginal people in managing alcohol and violence and you go and get drunk and beat up your wife. You can never come back to work. For the anaesthetist, how can he ever maintain that standard of behaviour that's expected when this behaviour occurs? So I hope it was a good problem. It was lovely working with you, <laughs> except you're much nastier to me than Karen is. Karen, you take care. We love you and we miss you. And yeah, goodbye, everyone. You. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye.